I keep a very important picture of myself on my desk these days. It's me when I must be about four or five years old. I'm at my grandmother's house. I'm playing with Legos. And there's a look on my face that I know exactly what it is. It's me dreaming. I came out a dreamer and a believer. And I even call the photo when I look at it, the boy who believed. I tell myself, look into the eyes of the boy who believed. The boy who was willing to dream big, scary, unrealistic dreams. Because that boy knew something about himself. He knew he was talented and capable. He could trust his own intuition and his taste. And that he had everything he needed. That boy looked forward to being an adult because he was so excited to see the things he was going to do with his life. But slowly, before he could get there, that boy was changed by really well-meaning intentions. His big, unobtainable dreams were shrunk down until they were something that were safe and doable. His unrelenting and fanatical belief in himself was also toned down so it could fit in the room and would not be offensive to people who would think he was a know-it-all, or that he didn't need them, or that he was cocky. And so bit by bit, I traded my belief in myself for comfort and inclusion, and a feeling like I had taken a temperature of the room and listened to everyone's opinions and now was making an informed decision about my life. Well, it took a lot of time, and it took a lot of pain, but eventually I started to remember the boy who believed, and I started to remember the feeling of trusting your own intuition. And these days, I spend a lot more time looking in for answers than looking out for answers. Because your relationship to what's inside you, your inner wisdom, your inner genius, your intuition, your discernment, is much more valuable than the best advice on the planet. Today's guest is an incredible example of what it means to cultivate that relationship with yourself, with your intuition, your inner artist, your inner genius, and to learn how to practice until you can honor the visions inside of you. What makes her story so special to me is that her gifts were not something that was cultivated at an early age, but instead something that was discovered and honed with nothing more than hard-earned willingness to explore herself and her talents and her abilities. And today, she's on the program to talk about her artistic journey, her philosophy, and what she has learned along the way of discovering her inner artist. Here's your water. Thank you. Sip slowly. <laughs> so, hey. Hey. Thanks for inviting me into your home and for coming on the program. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I start every single episode this way, and this can be as big or as small of a question as you would like. But who are you? I love that at the moment you asked me that question, a huge downpour of rain started. Um, <laughs> literally I looked up and, um, out the window, it was raining. I am a 51 and a half year old woman who is an artist and a writer. I live in Portland, Oregon, and I am married to an amazing woman named Clay. And I have a dog named Wilfredo and I have a great life and I feel very lucky to be here. And you're an incredible artist. Well, thank you very much. Uh, how far, just out of curiosity, where, how far does the artist part come in your identity? Is that up at the top or? Now it is. Yes. Now it is. Yes. I can't separate my art from my life or my life from my art. 
anymore. So, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. It's not that I work all the time. That's not necessarily what I mean, but, but it's a huge part of my identity now. Yeah. How often do you work on your art? Well, you know, it's interesting. I work full time as an artist, but so much of that is not actually drawing or painting. It's the business stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of this, you know, interviews, travel, administrative stuff. 20 minutes before you came over, I was out in my garage studio. I have two studios, one at home and um, one freestanding studio in North Portland. And I was helping my studio manager pack and ship orders from our online shop. So she does most of that, but I'm definitely part of that process. And so there's all kinds of things that I do that are not actually making art. It's just supporting my art business. It's funny how when you are working a nine to five and you imagine being a full-time artist, you imagine it being such a romantic thing. Like, yeah, you're just going to be creating all the time. It's going to be different. It's going to be so much easier to work. And then at least this is my experience. And then once you start, you're like, oh, there's, there's work. Anytime a friend of mine is like really in daydream mode, but I'm like, the second you do anything full time, there's a lot of work to it. Well, especially if you want to make a living at it. I certainly had that notion of it being romantic. In fact, I use that term a lot to describe how I felt about what I was embarking on in the early days. I sort of envisioned that I was going to be sitting around, you know, drinking tea at my drawing table, listening to NPR, (laughs) you know, and that every day was going to be like that. But what I wasn't thinking about was all of the hustle involved and making sure your work gets out into the world, which is you sort of have to create this like sustainable cycle of making work, putting it out into the world, and then, you know, making sure that people see it and giving people opportunities to, to pay you for it in order to keep the cycle going. And that's the part that most people don't think about. Your latest book, Finding Your Artistic Voice, is such a nice little handbook for what you know about being an artist. It kind of feels like this is everything I know about being an artist. I am really curious about talking to you about your strategies and ways and what you've learned from embarking on this creative journey, which started at 32. What? Yeah, it was 32 yeah. when I started drawing and painting. And it was sort of like I... I I like to think I went through like a very early midlife crisis or a life crisis at 32. I had been in a relationship for a long time with somebody um, that was very toxic and there was addiction involved and also had decided to make a career change from being an elementary school teacher to working in a nonprofit organization. And so like all of these things were happening at once. And I sort of went through a really kind of period of a lot of soul searching. I found myself really depressed and isolated and um, anxious. And so I started going to therapy and decided that I wanted to figure out like what made me want to get out of bed in the morning. Cause I, up until that point, I, I don't really think I knew. And my life was wrapped up in this relationship, which was very unhealthy. And in my job as a teacher in an inner city school, which was also not very healthy. And I left those things and felt, I mean, for all of the right reasons, but then felt all of this emptiness because, because I didn't know what there was for me if I didn't have these unhealthy things in my life. And so I went on a quest to figure out what I wanted to do. And it wasn't like I woke up and I said, I want to be a professional artist now, or I want to make art. It was just that art happened to be one of the things that I explored during that time. I also explored writing and cooking and sewing and all these other things, you know, 
um, most of them were creative, I think, because that was, I, I realized now that was something that was missing in the earlier part of my life. And so then I just started making things and it brought me this sense of satisfaction and completion that I hadn't ever felt before. And then I discovered the internet where I could share that with other people. <laughs> and then it was like, I'm done, you know, and it took a long time to build what I have now for sure. It did not happen overnight, but I got sort of motivated by all of that. And then also figured like, it's really important for me to do good work in the world. And I figured out a way to infuse that into my art making. And part of that is, you know, writing books for people about topics that I care about, including being an artist, but then also other things and being more politically involved and using my art for, you know, social justice and things like that. So that all took a long time to grow, but it was like this period where I started to figure out, like, I talk a lot about like the Venn diagrams of my life and all the intersection between things that I care about. And in my thirties was when I started to sort of create those Venn diagrams and like put the pieces together and build something for myself that was meaningful. Have you struggled with depression most of your life or is this a recurring thing or is it just that period? No, it was a recurring thing. Um, I've been mostly depression free since I was about 40. So I'm 52 now, but I started having battling depression when I was uh, eight years old, Um, like uh, having severe anxiety attacks at school and having my mom have to pick me up in third grade. And I had another bad bout when I was in, you know, was a teenager and then all through my twenties and in the worst case was in my early thirties. So around the heartbreak. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nothing makes me more suicidal than heartbreak. Yeah. I don't know. That's the only thing that has ever right. brought me to Well, I've also been like in that. a relationship for 12 years. So maybe, maybe I'm not saying my, my now wife has, is cured my depression, but I haven't gone through. <laughs> I found somebody that, um, I can have a healthy relationship with too, which I think helps because I was also in a cycle of relationships with people who, who were sort of unhealthy and, and even abusive. And so I, you know, internalize a lot of that. And then, you know, then those relationships end. And so there was a lot of learning that I had to do in my thirties about sort of like reshaping my life. And I think one of the things that really changed for me was, you know, I spent most of my life feeling like I didn't have any agency that, that I, Mm. I grew up sort of feeling like that my life didn't matter or that, you know, that things happened to me. And once I shifted my thinking around that, it was even around the experiences of having anxiety or depression, the fact that I started to feel like there were things that I had control over that I could like have agency around in my own experience, even how I viewed those things as learning experiences versus, oh, this is terrible and this is happening to me. So I'm just going to go to bed and never get up, you know? And so all of that changed. And that's not to say that I still don't experience days where I'm depressed or anxious, but by and large, I haven't gone through a major episode um, since I was about 39. That is so incredible. Yeah. I feel very grateful. And I feel like art and the way that I get to express myself in the world um, has been a huge factor in that as well. Like being a creative person, it makes me feel alive in a way that I never felt alive before. Yeah, it's fresh on my mind. Today is uh, September 10th, which is National Suicide Prevention Day. Yeah, I know. Day. And so it's just, you know, and that's been part of my journey is like learning how to live with pretty severe depression at times and, you know, not act on it or just to be be patient. 
Is there anything else that, in, so a lot of our audience, because that's something I talk about, is people <laughs> like us who are learning how to live with clinical depression. Yeah. Is there anything else that you do to manage your mental illness or? Yeah. So I go through periods, I'm not always super successful at it, but I go through periods where I um, meditate regularly, which I found extremely helpful. You know, I'm I'm struggling a lot right now with finding balance in my life. I have this really kind of thriving career, which I'm super grateful for, but it also makes, you know, when you have a lot that you have to do in a day, you know, making time for quiet is, and reflection is really like, I find that challenging. And I'm, I'm, I feel like my constant struggle is figuring out what is the right balance between enough work to make me help me to feel sort of useful in the world. Cause that's really important to me. That's something that I value, but also enough time to be still because I feel like I get the most depressed and anxious nowadays. Now that I have no, don't have to deal with heartbreak so much. Um, the things <laughs> that are my triggers are feeling like squeezed into a sardine can. Like I, like I feel like I can't breathe because I have too much pressure of this project and that project and this book and this thing. And they're all things I signed up for and chose. Right. So I'm trying to figure out how to take advantage of amazing opportunities in my artistic career, but I'll make also make enough time to take care of myself. And, um, and I feel like that's a constant struggle, but meditation has been when I do make the time for it, something that has been extremely helpful. Me too. But it always comes in kind of little bursts. Yeah. I haven't been able to maintain it consistently for more than like 250 days, Oh, that's which a good is, streak. which is a good streak, but you know, and then I'll start traveling a lot. And, and in my head, I'm like, Oh, when I travel for a book tour or whatever, that is like the time when it's the most important to be like getting up in the morning and, and having a routine of meditation. But it's the time when I find it the hardest. And so I am taking a sabbatical next year from client work and a lot of the professional work that I do just to sort of commissions or. Yeah. And so a lot of what I spend my time doing is client work. Yeah. Commissions, um, illustration commissions, license, art licensing. I also, this year alone, I've been working on three different books, um, which will all come out next year. And so I'm my, my work, my days are very deadline driven. Even if the deadline isn't for like two months, it's always there. And I wanted to give myself a break from deadlines. So I'm still going to go to my studio and work and create things. But also I'm more interested in the short term in doing work that like getting up every day and making the work I want to make versus the work I'm commissioned to do and paid to do. And I've been saving up money and have enough to sort of take a year off. And I also have shops that will continue to support me. So I'm not going to stop working. I'm just going to stop like some of the work. And I'm hoping in that process that I can reset kind of how I approach my career because I've been sort of riding this wave for 12 years. And now I'm really interested in stepping back and getting off the hamster wheel. That sounds amazing. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Being able to do that. Yeah, it's scary, but I'm excited. Speaking of that kind of work-life balance, because immediately for me, when I wake up, the first thing, it's just like, oh, the world is still going. Yeah. Right. And uh, I can either post something at 7 a.m. and it will get do great, or I can post it at 9 and it will do half as good. That's just the way we're in this like very strange time. We are. What have you done to figure out what is that healthy amount? Because anybody, especially if they're transitioning and so they're going from working eight hours to trying to put in three hours of studio time after that, which Mm -hmm. is exhausting. Yes, Um, I've been there. Yeah, me too. (laughs) 
what have you determined is the the healthy because I'm also a father like you're mm-hmm. a, a good wife how have you found that balance and so showing up for the relationship and showing up for yourself I think it takes constant attention I talk a lot about the importance of of showing up and being present and it's such a challenging thing because we can get so lost in whatever it is we're doing social media or work or deadlines or you know, whatever our thing is that we forget about our relationships or ourselves, you know? And I, you know, I think that I've learned mostly in sort of hard ways. I mean, I think we all learn hard lessons when that happens, right? Like relationships suffer when you don't show up for them. And so for me, it's literally every day I've become very good at sort of um, compartmentalizing time. And so I have very strict boundaries around when I work. So I get up and I, if I start working at 7am, then I typically end my work day by four, you know, I'm very, I don't actually anymore have energy to work more than eight or nine hours a day. Occasionally I do when I have a deadline or something that's due or a client needs a last minute change on something. And part of the reason that I have become good at boundaries is I've realized how important my relationships are in my life. Like that's where I get I get a lot of energy from being alone. I'm an introvert. So, you know, sure, sitting alone and making art and drawing and working on my my books and everything is great. And I enjoy that. But I also get a lot of energy just from being with my people, my friends, and, you know, processing my day and laughing and going and doing things with people. So prioritizing those relationships and maintaining communication, you know, with positive communication with those people in my life is really important. Um, letting people I know I appreciate them. And I mean, even my my studio manager, Amy, we've become very close and, you know, she works her butt off for me. But every now and again, we have to stop and just like be human together, you know, yeah. and process what's going on in her life. And like her mom has Alzheimer's and, and you know, she's really like struggling deep down inside with a lot with with that and, you know, making time to talk about that as an important part of our time together versus like checking things off the to-do list. And I think maybe partly too, just being 52 and having been through half a century of life, I, I understand how important relationships are. And so I really make an effort to try to balance those with the amount of work that I have on my plate. It's not always easy, but I feel like it's important. Your story of starting at 32 I think is part of the folklore, right? Why people love your story so much is because it really shows the truth that we have such a strange mythology about the artist and maybe it's just America, but I don't, but where it's like, there are these chosen people that were born with the gift and they, they had training when they were early. And one of my favorite things about what you've done, cause I know a couple of other artists who started later and have like a really beautiful and inspirational community, but they are much more like loose and you've really taken it to a pretty high technical place. It's just really beautiful art that you you would never know that you started later than the next person. And I was wondering if we could dive a little deeper into the journey of that, of that you, you kind of had a, a lifetime up until then that felt like you were saying that you, you didn't have autonomy in your life and that things were just happening around you and you had to react to them to being in this beautiful heartbroken place and, and, and taking a a leap to, to make art. I was wondering if we could dive into your last 12 year journey into this world. 
Yeah. Well, the last 12 years has been my professional journey, but really the journey started 20 years ago. And I, so basically, as I mentioned, I went through this sort of, you know, the old fashioned term is nervous breakdown. (laughs) And I don't mind calling it that because it really felt like that. And the thing about, you know, when something like that happens, when you crack open like that, you can either sort of, it can go many directions. And I feel like I, I chose at that time, I made a choice at that time to try to, to use it, you know, in a, in a way that was different than any other time in my life that I had felt cracked open and resorted to other means for sort of making myself feel better. And I got really addicted to this idea of self-knowledge and, and also just creative expression, like taking all of the pain that was inside of me and pouring it out. And then also finding things that I was joyful about and making work about those. And so in my early journey, I remember I lived in this tiny apartment in San Francisco and I started taking painting and drawing classes. So I was in my early thirties, like 32, 33, 34. And I, I had no idea what I was doing. Like I was the ultimate beginner. I didn't have necessarily any artistic, like as a kid, I was not the art kid. You know, in fact, I got a message a lot when I was younger that, you know, like my brother and sister were in the gift and intelligence program at school and I was not, you know, tested for that. Like there was clearly like ideas around, you know, who I was that were different. And I, and I absorbed that, you know, and the benefit to that was when I started making art, I had nothing to live up to. You know, I was like complete beginner. I had no fear on some level. Cause I was like, you know, on the other hand, you know, there was the part of me that was, you know, like, I'm not the artist, but then I was like, well, what do I have to lose? So I started just making art and, you know, it was pretty terrible. <laughs> it was very much beginner artwork, but I fell in love with the process of making and the creative process in a way I had never fallen in love with anything before, including another human being. And it was just like, I remember I went through this period when I was probably between 34 and 36, 37, somewhere in the middle there. And I was mostly single during that time, which was also instrumental in this like explosion of discovery for me where I would literally, I would go out with my friends sometimes at night, but I would hole up in my apartment on the weekends and just make stuff all weekend and like watch. It was back when Netflix was the the DVDs that would get sent to you. I guess they still do that for some people, but oh, they do. <laughs> yeah. My parents get the DVDs in the mail cool. still. I know, but like, and I was addicted to six feet under and I hadn't watched it yet, but so I like went through every season of six feet under and would sit on the floor of my bedroom. I lived in this small apartment and like make stuff. And I, sometimes I was sewing, sometimes I was quilting, sometimes I was like drawing or painting. And I just, um, I was so happy. And it was the first time I was ever happy just being by myself and like doing my thing. I had no idea you could do it for a living. And as we mentioned earlier, that also sometimes takes the joy out of it. But like when you turned into a business, but at the time I was like, I'm just doing this for fun. And then the internet happened. I started posting things on Flickr which was like, you know, it still exists, but like, you know, photo sharing site. And I started a blog in 2004 or five, somewhere in there, my first blog. And I started, you know, writing about the stuff I was making and writing about my life. And then I met other people who were doing the same because, you know, the internet connects you even when you don't necessarily want to be connected or aren't looking for connection. And, and then it just sort of like by 2007, I was looking at potentially leaving my 
full-time job. Um, at Were you a, teaching then? No, I was working at an education nonprofit okay. in San Francisco. And um, I loved my work and my coworkers, but I f- sort of found this thing and I, and it, it's, it was this love, this amount of freedom that I had never felt before. And I was like all in for the, the hard work of it too, because I, at that point I started to realize like, oh, if I'm going to pay my mortgage, because I owned my apartment in San Francisco, which I bought when San Francisco was cheap. Um, you know, and if I'm going to like, if I'm going to be an adult, like I can't and have health insurance and all that stuff, like I can't, I have to, I have, I have to hustle. I have to start that now. So so then I started that process and it was really hard for a few years. I had debt and I had to pay off the debt, but there was some like light out in front of me that kept that I kept going for. And honestly, at the time I never imagined that I could that I would be able to do what I do now or have the following that I have or have all the opportunities that I have as an artist, but I did start like mind mapping and I would like make these big maps of all the things I I fantas. I just started allowing myself to fantasize. Such a gift. It is. And yeah. honestly, earlier in my life, I was so closed off to the possibility that I could do or be anything that would make me happy or make me feel fulfilled. So this was like a, sh- a switch got turned on and I just started allowing myself to dream without and just literally f- be filled with euphoria thinking about all the things I could do with my creativity. And then they started to happen. <laughs> You know, it's weird to think about now. And so I continue to do that. Now I fantasize more about working less and making fewer things. <laughs> you know, I feel like I've, I've gone over that hump. But that's sort of how it all started. And then I started to make a, a, a little bit of a living. And then every year it sort of increased. And I, 12 years ago, I met the person who I'm now married to. So within a year we moved in together, which helped. I was still very much a struggling artist when we met 12 years ago. I was working, starting to work full time as an artist, but I wasn't, you know, I was like barely, I had to borrow money from her a few times, <laughs> you know, in the beginning, but I was hell bent on not giving up um, this dream that I had. And so I just kept working at it. Um, and then sort of exponentially every year it continued to grow. Wow. And, and I would say too, back to your earlier point of like my work being very tight. I think a big part of that was just that I practiced a lot and I made a lot of art. So my career also exponentially grew as the quality of my work began to improve. And then, it, you know, I began getting noticed and, and that didn't happen magically. It literally was me just like in every waking moment that I had that I wasn't, you know, with friends or my partner or taking time for myself or sleeping, I was practicing and I feel like my work continues to get better because I make it all of the time. You can't help, you can't do something every day for years and not get better at it. No, that's, a, that is the, the ingredient. Yeah. I went to art school for four years before I had a nervous breakdown. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, but it, I wasn't brave enough to do like a fine arts program. So it was industrial design yeah. but where you're, you literally have to draw yeah. in perspective. Like yeah. They're like, oh, the phone wouldn't, you know, if you're designing a phone, they'd be like, it has to look like a photo. Yeah. Otherwise, they might think something's different with the design. And I remember coming in with a lot of natural talent. And over those four years, I remember kids that couldn't draw putting in more work than me. And at the end of it, they were much better illustrators. And I remember feeling like it's the world isn't what I grew up believing, which was about talent, this like mysterious talent. It was about the hard work and it was about these 
kids who showed up and they couldn't draw a stick figure. Yeah. And then they were really, they had surpassed me somehow when I was right getting high. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think in some really rare exceptions, I think there are like, you know, one or 2% of the population who are prodigies or what we would describe as prodigies, people who have just like their brain is wired differently for, for certain things. And some of it's math, sometimes it's math, sometimes it's music, sometimes it's art. But for 98, 99% of the population, um, even for some of those people who are super talented, like showing up and practicing is really what makes you who you are as an artist. And I also like as somebody who never considered myself creative or artistic, and I had, you know, came from a family where my, my sister in particular was sort of labeled the creative one. And she certainly was like, she's an amazing creative person. Um, but I remember like in my in my early thirties when I started drawing and making things and people were like, what? And then they were watching my work improve and they were watching me make things that they liked. And all these people who knew me before were sort of like, who is this person? Is this always, I remember my sister asking me, I I talk about this a little bit in, in my book. I was like sitting, I was visit, she lives here and I was in Portland and I was visiting her when I it was when I lived in San Francisco, and and my niece and nephew who are now in their late teens were like toddlers. They were all sort of staring at me, me drawing. And my sister said to me later that day, like, I wonder, like, has this always been in you, or you know? And it's so hard to say because it was never sort of like um, nurtured in me when I was younger. You know, I was the jock, I was the hard worker, I was the one who got good grades, but I wasn't necessarily the artist, and. I'm so glad that I sort of had all these things happen in my life that allowed me to take the risk to go there. Cause it just goes to show you, you never know what's lying dormant in somebody. Yeah. Do you think it was always in you? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that if I had gotten the, had the opportunities or gotten the pushing when I was younger, it might've happened. My parents are very, um, were very hands-off. They were the opposite of helicopter parents. Yeah. <laughs> they sort of let us do what we want and they didn't pressure us too much around school. So I don't think there would have been pressuring around anything, but certainly how you label children, you know, kids pick up on that. And I was definitely not labeled as the creative one, but I figured it out eventually that that was an important part of who I was. And um, now I feel like so grateful that I figured that out. Is perfectionism part of who you are? Is that something you work with? Yes, but not in a way you would think. And so actually, I always talk about the fact that I got this non-perfectionism gene from my mom. So my mom is this person who is also very creative. She really, she's also an artist and she actually didn't start making art until she was even, she was in her 40s or 50s. So she was even older than I was. And she still makes art to this day. Sorry. That's not who it is. That's okay. Do you want to get um, it? Is sure. it the mailman? I don't know. Oh, we edit everything. Okay. I cut out. Um, I'll, <laughs> right, br- so. I'll bring parts to the back to the front. <laughs> okay, cool. So we were just talking about, let me think this through. We were just talking about, oh, my mom. Yeah. Yeah. Perfectionism. Yeah. So... My mom is this kind of person who she just tries things. Like I grew up witnessing this woman, you know, the dishwasher would break or the, you know, something in the house would 
be off and she would just figure it out. You know, she would just, she doesn't really have a fear of things, especially creatively. She'll just try things. I mean, she's 80, she's going on 82 and she still does this daily drawing project every day. I mean, eyesight's going, they're kind of like these, you know, very naive drawings, but like she literally draws every single day. She's kind of, and doesn't really care what other people think. So I grew up witnessing this person who was very creative, even before she was sort of self-identified creative, just doing things and making things and trying things and not worrying very much about being perfect. And I definitely inherited that gene from my mom. So while I am concerned about making work that I feel good about and that you know, other people will appreciate and that, that, you know, and I'm really interested in pushing myself, you know, technically and creatively. I've, I would not describe myself as a perfectionist, actually. I'm, I'm pretty okay with trying things and putting them out into the world. And I think that's part of why I kind of, that my career grew very quickly because I, I think what a lot of people do, and I witness this and I talk to people all the time now when I teach workshops and give talks who are incredibly talented, but you know, there's this gap between what they do are able to do and what they, you know, where they want their work to be. And so, um, so many people are dismayed by that gap in, you know, their taste versus what they're able or what they think they're able to execute. So they don't share it at all, or they don't, you know, or they quit, you know, or they keep it secret until they think they've got it close to being perfect. And, um, I've always been really good at sort of like braving that that uncomfortable period where you're starting something new or trying to use a new medium and you're probably not very good at it yet, but you know, you're still sort of like actively engaged in doing it and sharing it and then eventually you get better at it, but I've never sort of been secretive about my process because I was ashamed that it it wasn't, you know, I can look back on older work and say, yeah, that's not very good. But at the time, I think I had a just so like, I know I'm not, I know it's not very good, but I'm pretty happy with it because I just started and I'm going to put it, you know, I'm going to put it on Flickr or I'm going to put it on my blog. And I just kept doing that. And I think it's, it's worked in my favor. You know, I guess I, I, like, I, I don't have that perfectionist gene so much. How do you decide when you've done your best and when it's time to stop and say, move on to, uh, the next chapter when, yeah. cause uh, for me, perfectionism has stolen so many pieces of art from me Yeah, by just not, um, finishing them, not being able to finish them. Or even in some instances where I don't even start mm-hmm. because there's like some inner protector that's like, yep. don't start. You, yeah. It's going to be shit. Yeah. 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 Well, one of my favorite mantras is begin anyhow, because we make a million excuses for why it's not the right time to start something because like even starting alone, much less finishing something is like the most terrifying experience for people and the most vulnerable experience for people. Um, And it is also sometimes for me too. I think the more you sort of familiarize yourself or the more you kind of make it a habit or a routine to show up and lay the pencil on the paper, the more comfortable you get with starting. So I don't know. I feel like for me, that process is like for anyone messy, you know, sometimes, you know, I have projects where that are self-directed, you know, personal work and where I, I'm only making the thing because I got inspired to make it right. And so I get to decide when I start it, what the process looks like of making it. Like I like to say, you know, like 
I like to think like I'm the boss of my art and how I make it, right? So I, I get to go through that whole process and then I get to decide when it's done. And those I those situations are sometimes feel like flow very easily and sometimes they're they're really difficult. Somebody at a book signing the other day asked me, like, I don't know, I, I find myself repainting over things constantly because I can never decide when something is done and I get so close and then I screw it up. Yeah. Like, why couldn't I have just called it done? That is like, I think one of the hardest things to try to figure out as an artist. I also make work for clients, right? And so there's deadlines attached and there's very specific art direction. And in some ways, those jobs are easier because somebody is telling me what they want. And if it's not quite right, they'll tell you, you know, you just got to get comfortable, like getting feedback, which is a whole other ballgame, you know? And so... I do struggle with it sometimes and sometimes I don't. It's not, I'm not one of those people who has a super linear kind of a similar process every time. I do find myself struggling a lot sometimes with pieces and and then even abandoning things that probably have a lot of promise. Um, and then other times things flow out of me really easily. I had this painting teacher and I, I talk about this a little bit in both my book, Art Inc., and um, in my new book, Find Your Artistic Voice. I had this painting teacher in San Francisco, and he, I would take classes at like UC Berkeley Extension or whatever. And um, and then I started taking classes from him in his studio, and he used to talk about the painting curve. And that when you start something, and this is applies not just to painting, but I think to making anything, right? Like everything looks really pristine and fresh, and you're kind of like into it because you haven't layered things on yet. You haven't sort of like pushed it. And then at the bottom of the painting curve, everything looks messy and horrible and like muddy and brown. And, you know, that's the point at which most people want to rip up the thing or start over again. But if you can push through the bottom of the painting curve, you actually get back up to the other side where it becomes beautiful again. I think about that analogy a lot when I'm working and when I'm stuck in a place that feels like I want to start over, like how can I push this instead of abandoning what I've already done? Yeah. How do you actually manage what pieces you're going to be working on? Obviously with client work, you're just doing whatever they hired you to do. But when a a couple of your pieces have included really long form projects, like the collection a day, which is incredibly ambitious. And how do you actually decide do you wait for inspiration? Do you just make, or how do you actually decide what you're going to be working on? Yeah. So I have obviously a certain set of projects that I'm working on in collaboration with other people and clients and publishers, but I try as often as I can. And for the most part, I, I can do this pretty regularly. I go for like months at a time where I don't have time for any personal work, but I'm always thinking about what can I be doing for myself or like what is self-generated? And sometimes I just started drawing digitally about two years ago and that's made personal work a lot easier for me to do because I can do it on my iPad and, you know, while I'm watching Netflix with my wife and still spend time with her, you know, at 8.30 at night when um, I'm not technically not working. And drawing digitally is this way faster sort of, it's so easy to sort of edit your work and, you know, kind of like work around the messy, the bottom of the painting curve. <laughs> and so I've, it's made making personal work a lot easier for me. And so sometimes I'll just make stuff that I'll be thinking about an idea 
and I make a piece of art that has to do with that idea. And I'm also a hand letterer, so a lot of my work has messages in it. So I'll make work about something that I've been thinking a lot about. Like yesterday, I posted something that said, every mistake is progress, because that's something I've been trying to sort of like instill in myself and as opposed to beating myself up when I make a mistake. Not make a mistake so much in my artwork, but make a mistake in my life, you know? And um, where I've hurt someone's feelings or, you know, done something that I wish I had done differently. Like, oh, I can learn from this and this is an opportunity which makes it progress, right? So I made a piece of art about that because I had a feeling it would resonate with other people. So a lot of times the work I make is like, is just an opportunity for me to connect with people around ideas that I think we should be talking about. There's a lot of people out in the world who are very hard on themselves. And as somebody who has a history of being hard on herself, like I get it. And I also am working through that. And so sharing sharing about that feels important to me. I have a, a solo show next year. So a lot of the work that I make leading up to a solo show, which I'm going to start soon, is just whatever I want to make. And so I probably will start working on a body of work in the next couple of months for that show. And that is more sort of like, I mean, I get really excited before I make a body of work because it can be about anything. And like, what theme do I want to dig into? And like, what what do I want to what do I want to make work about? And yeah, sometimes it feels overwhelming, but mostly it just feels exciting. And, and so sometimes my personal work is like leading up to some kind of exhibition or, or something. And then a lot of the personal work I make ends up evolving into a book or, (laughs) you know, something that I can actually make income from, which is super awesome. Yeah. What do you want to do with the rest of your time here? on this planet in terms of it could be creatively, but it could just be with what do you want to do? What do you want to have done uh, when you get to your deathbed? Well, it's interesting that you asked that question because as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to take a sabbatical next year. So I went off the grid earlier this summer for a bit of time and being off your phone and the computer is this really like freaky, but powerful experience. There's a withdrawal period too. Um, yeah. And, um, but I was, I wasn't alone. I was, I was with my wife and like, I just, had this explosion of thinking about what I want. I hadn't really given much thought to what I'm going to actually, I mean, taking a sabbatical sounds like, you know, you're going to sit around and eat bonbons all day, but like, that is not how I want to use my sabbatical. Like I want to actually use it to do the things that I don't, to reshape my life and to sort of like dive into things that are interesting to me or that I don't feel like I have time for now. So I started like thinking about buckets of things that I'm really interested in. I'm really interested in this notion of leadership. And I think partly it's because we have a vacuum of it in this country right now um, and what it means to be a leader in this world. So I've been reading a lot about about leadership and new thinking on what it means to be a leader. I don't lead a, a corporation. I don't lead a nonprofit. I don't, you know, but I am somebody who who has a platform and I want to make sure that I use it in a positive way. So, and I want to learn as much as I can about what that can look like. I also am really interested in kind of pushing my creative practice out of like the sort of usual cycle of what I've been doing. So part of how I want to use next year is like potentially discovering new mediums or getting back, you know, because I've been drawing so much digitally lately, I want to get back into like making things with my hands again and getting my hands dirty. And I bought a kiln. So I've been working with clay a little bit here and there. I want to do more of that. And all of this is in service of the rest of my life, right? Like 
I'm at this point now where I've experienced a lot of success in my career and I have this opportunity to take what I've learned and all the skill that I've acquired and potentially turn it into something new and even more exciting for myself. I don't know what that looks like yet, but I feel like I'm sort of at this precipice where like I'm at the beginning of the rest of my life and next year is about kind of exploring what that looks like. Letting go of the stuff that's not serving me anymore that I'm just not interested in doing anymore. It might even be something that's lucrative, but that doesn't bring me joy and trying some new things that I haven't had any time to try because I've been so busy running this business and working for clients and all of that. So I don't really know what the rest of my life is going to look like or what I'm here to do, but I'm really interested in trying to figure that out and like figuring out how being an activist and or a leader and how like how that meshes with my art practice. I also am a road cyclist and I am super into long distance cycling. Competitively? No, I don't compete though I could. I am on a team. Um, I don't compete because I don't have time. And next year I have this goal that I want to ride my bike 3000 miles, not all at once, but just cum- <laughs> cumulatively and potentially raise money um, for a cause, like have, you know, make a goal for myself and have people pledge money. So there's even a way for me to take this thing that I enjoy doing already outside in the world that like kind of is my church, right? Or that refreshes me and infuse that into like, I'm really all about like having my life feel really integrated, like all the parts of my life. And so I'm trying to figure out how to meld all those, all my passions and interests together. And I feel like next year is about that, figuring out how to do that going forward. Wow. Yeah. You've been really generous with your time. Oh, (laughs) I don't ever really pay attention to time. That's the thing. And then I'll just be talking and talking. (laughs) No, this is perfect. Oh, good. I always like to end the program this way, which is if I could hand you my phone right now and a younger version of yourself at any point in your life would pick it up and you could send a message to her Mm. that she could carry with her until she became Mm -hmm. the woman who you are today. Mm -hmm. What would you want to tell her? Or when when would it be and what would you want to tell her? Oh, gosh. You know, I think I started having really deep feelings of unworthiness when I was a teenager and definitely into my twenties. And, um, there is also a way that that age, did you ever watch that movie eighth grade No. by Bo Burnham? It's an indie film called eighth grade. And it's about this girl who's an eighth grader and she's, it's, it's a beautiful film. I related so much to that you know, like awkwardness of being in eighth grade. And I always think of myself at that time and even into my twenties. And I would tell myself like, you have value and like you have value and you have worth because I felt so invisible, especially after I came out, I felt not interesting and I wanted to do good in the world, but what that looked like for me was saving other people and being codependent and not in a sort of like genuinely empowering way. And, um, and so I, I would tell myself, I would, I would tell myself so much about like what I had the potential to do because I did eventually figure that out, but I wasn't, you know, in my late thirties by the time I did. So, yeah. Thank you for your time. Of course. Thanks for having me. 
Hey, so that's the end of this conversation. But if you don't want the conversation to end, you can follow us on social media on almost every platform. We're at hellohumans.co, except for Twitter, which has an underscore CO. Our website is hellohumans.co. We have great stories, videos, and the episodes live there as well. And for more of our guests, for more of any of our guests, I always post their social media, their books, their videos, their art in the show notes, which is another word for the podcast episode description, and it's available wherever you're listening. I promise you just have to click around. If you'd like to help us out more, there's a few ways you can help. Please share this podcast with your friends or people that you think would get value out of it. Writing us a review on iTunes is incredibly helpful for our ratings. And also, of course, this program is not possible without listener community contribution. So our patrons are our financial backbone of this product. That's how we manage to do this ad-free. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash how to human. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash how to human. This is the How to Human podcast, a production of hellohumans.co. Until next time, have a great day.